Hey listeners, welcome to SphereCast, a podcast all about technology, technology advice, technology inspiration, and how real entrepreneurs have used technology to build their businesses from the ground up. If you're wondering how technology can support your business goals, rest assured, our guests have been there and done that. This week, we interview Rene Fitzner, co-founder and CEO at Xperify.io. Fitzner's company fills a market gap for direct-to-consumer brands, connecting product shoppers with real product owners to get a hands-on trial before purchase. Xperify boasts a new way of authentic consumerism and allows shoppers to cut through unreliable online reviews to make more informed decisions. The company is based in Zurich, Switzerland, and is backed by various international think tanks. René is a technical mastermind at Xperify.io. As you would imagine, he's a pretty smart guy. He gained degrees in statistical and theoretical physics from top universities prior to becoming a data scientist. In fact, Prior to founding Xperify.io, he worked as a data scientist in one of Switzerland's most renowned news publications. On the podcast, Fitzner lays out the journey of Xperify.io thus far, including the process of identifying and meeting a market need. René spares no details in retelling his company's story and even briefly highlights his platform's infrastructure, which is built for speed and on-demand scale. Though a business for 18 months, Fitzner can attest to ups and downs of startup life, but shares how, even in the hardship, the proverbial grind is worth it to work alongside people you trust in building something you truly believe in. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Renee Fitzner. Renee, thank you for joining us. So for the benefit of our audience, I'd like to start with um, the most recent venture. Can you tell us about the Xperify and why did you create this service? Sure. So we started out with uh, Xperify um, a little bit more than a year ago. And um, the reason we started is that uh, we found that there is actually a pretty huge uh, pain point that direct-to-consumer brands and their customers have. So for those of you who don't know what a direct-to-consumer brand is, it's basically a brand that um, you know sells directly online without any retailers in the middle and most often without any showrooms. And the problem that um, those brands have and the customers of those brands have that uh, you can actually, before you buy the product and you actually get it delivered to your house, uh, there is no way to actually see and test, uh, you know, see and touch and test the product. And that's where we thought, well, you know, I mean, this is fine for like smaller item. I don't know, like a bar of soap or something. But if you're buying, let's say, you know, a bicycle or maybe a car, right? I mean, Tesla is basically a direct consumer brand or maybe a guitar, uh, something like this. So things that you really want to see and hear and touch before you buy it, that's uh, going to be a problem. And then we said, hey, you know, why can't we do anything about this? And uh, we said, hey, wouldn't it be actually the coolest way to experience a product that you are really considering buying with a real customer that already exists? And that's basically what we do. So when you're interested in a product, we connect you with people, most likely nearby, somewhat in your you know, community, neighborhood, who already own that product. So you can kind of get a real honest opinion, meet with a person, you know, kind of see, maybe test the bike, test the Tesla, test the you know, guitar, whatever it is. And that's basically what we, what we do and why we started out with Xperify. 
when, when did you realize this pain point? Like, was it like something you came across yourself or um, I'm, I'm just trying to understand yeah. Like, yeah. what led to this sure. or sure. was, or were, you know, you guys just, you know, sitting in a bar or something and the sure. idea just came. We touched upon this after the event. So yes, exactly. Like last year in September. So yeah, yes, like, exactly. you know, if, if you can tell us a little bit more about that story. Sure. I can tell you about that. So, so basically how it came upon is that, um, uh, so we need to go a little bit back. So my my background is in data science. I used to be the lead data scientist at um, the Swiss uh, newspaper of um, um, record, basically the New York Times of um, Switzerland. And there we did, you know, many things, uh, one of them being marketing optimization. And it was there basically that I realized that, hey, you know, the marketing industry kind of will get into deep, deep troubles. And the reason for this is that, you know, people are starting to use ad bloggers more and more. Um, we are basically in a constant war for attention. So attention is decreasing. Um, and chances are that at some point we will not see kind of a lot of the advertisement that we still see today anymore. So I kind of had this question in mind um, that was uh, basically rethinking advertising. And that was kind of the idea. And then I actually uh, um, came together with um, two um, friends of mine who were uh, career-wise in a similar situation and said, hey, you know what, we all have kind of huge lists of, um, you know, ideas of startups that we would like to do, you know, products that the world could actually need. So why not actually, you know, give it a try, take basically three months where we kind of work together and see whether we can come up with kind of a common vision, kind of a common theme. And uh, we said, yeah, okay, let's um, do this. Uh, we took this question that I posed earlier, rethinking advertising, basically in it. And based on this, we kind of quickly arrived or, or we, we, we basically quickly arrived at this idea that, hey, what's the problem with marketing? Well, it's unauthentic on the one hand side. And on the other hand side, and now this is where, you know, streams come together as it's usually, it's not just one thing. There it comes together that one of my co-founders actually just recently bought a quite expensive bike online from a direct-to-consumer brand. And he was like, hey, I would really like to test this. And there we kind of realized that, hey, you know, we could actually bring those two streams together and actually the combination of both, you know, the possibility that I could meet with someone who already owns the product would solve the problem for the brand on the one hand side of being authentic and on the other hand side, me as a customer, I could get kind of, you know, this honest opinion that I was looking for. Very interesting. So obviously, We've talked about where you started off with this idea and how, how it came to fruition. So let's take a maybe a small step back. So I'd love to understand, um, once you had identified this pain point, or let's say, let's say not a pain point, this is how the marketing is progressing and this this uh, tension that all the consumer brands are trying to, to get to and that there's not enough of uh, this uh, available. So I'd like to understand, how did you go about creating the proof of concept what was the idea sure i mean of course like in those first you know in this first kind of phase there were a couple of pivots we kind of tried on many things and when i say tried, it's mainly you know kind of qualitative tests talking to customers or talking to people kind of figuring out you know what are pain points what would be possible solutions and at the end when we arrived at uh, at the end became xperify it was really so that, hey, you know what, we, we kind of first need to test whether brands would be interested in this. Uh, so we kind of actually started building a, a proof of concept that is a technical proof of concept uh, with a, 
actually with a no-code platform called Bubble, um, bubble.io. And um, um, that was actually hugely helpful uh, because, you know, basically within a few days, um, although I am a software engineer, basically with my background, within a couple of days, we kind of had something that, you know, we could actually go out and actually show to brands and see whether they'd be interested in it. And then actually kind of get kind of the first early, uh, you know, early adopter customer. And that is what we did here in Zurich. So it's actually been a local bike brand. And he said, yeah, you know what, why not give it a try? Embedded it on his homepage. Uh, this very, very early kind of, you know, proof of concept. And um, still, and there we kind of first got to see, hey, would the people be willing to actually show their products, in this case, their bikes, because that's kind of the first question that you have there. And then on the other hand side, you know, would people actually reach out and, you know, talk to a stranger, or maybe meet a stranger even to actually see and test uh, the bike in this case. And yeah, that's what we did with this really super easy kind of uh, no code, but still kind of uh, fully functional proof of concept. Which is what my question was uh, going to be, how functional this particular prototype was. I mean, Bubble.io, I'd never heard of it. So I'm sure, you know, our team is going to look into this a little bit more. I mean, of course, in terms of what it does, it was like basically only the interface and a lot of what is now, you know, proper backend logic basically was kind of um, three guys um, um, seeing emails coming in and kind of doing it manually, kind of connecting people manually. Um, so it's kind of this, you know, at the... Um, from a user perspective, it kind of looked like a pretty crappy, but still a kind of a, you know, proper system. Um, but you still, you kind of could test the hypothesis whether people would in general kind of actually kind of use this kind of service. Okay. If there was any interest in yeah, using it, but yes. there was a lot of uh, manual workarounds in the background. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, it was completely fake it until you make it. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. And, and were you three in other jobs while you were doing this? Or was it, you know, you were completely devoted to this? Yeah, no, at this point, we were already completely devoted to this, yeah. Can you tell us about some key milestones in your process that you've identified going from the beginning up until now? Maybe there's other processes that you're looking into and some of the timelines and was it organized by Sprint or Kanban board? How was it? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, basically none of this, you know. I mean, when you start out basically with a gut feeling, which is what that was, right? I mean, it wasn't kind of an engineering project at the beginning, like the first months. It's basically trying to figure out whether, you know, whether there is a business in general, whether there is interest in general. So for us, the milestones, they were... Well, at the very beginning, it was basically on a weekly basis. We, 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 we basically just, you know, set focus for weeks that, hey, you know what, we wanted to talk to, I don't know, 50 customers. We want to talk to, I don't know, five journalists. We want to talk to, I don't know, five random brands. So at the beginning, basically for the first months, we were mainly focused on the business side. So not at all on the technical side. So in this sense, um, it is really not kind of a, let's say, technical founder story where, you know, you kind of start building something and then you try to sell it. But it was really the other way around. So we really were kind of first trying to see whether there is a business and whether people actually would kind of use it. So in this sense, the milestones really were to get kind of a gut feeling because it's still not hard data. It's not like, you know, thousands of brands you can talk to, but kind of getting a gut feeling when talking to journalists, talking to brands, talking to customers, whether there actually is a business. And from there, basically milestones kind of developed. And uh, yeah, so at the beginning, it was really kind of business-related milestones. 
Um, and I mean, then of course it kind of became more um, um, technical. But there again, since um, I'm the technical co-founder in the team, you know, there 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 was the need for or let's say there wasn't much kind of communication overhead in terms of development sprints. You just, you know, uh, invest the days and the nights that you can in order to get it running. And then, yeah, that's basically it. Awesome. So what about the strategy? You said that you started with the business goal set in mind, and then you went into technology. So what was the product strategy? How did you, did you go with the cheap and dirty MVP for the beginning or did you go high tech, high end technologies? How did you scale it? Yeah, so talking about scaling, you know, we are still only kind of a year old and we're just about to actually raise kind of our our seed run might be a bit uh, too much, but um, I'm, I'm still. Uh, yeah, so basically, how did we go about it? Well, we really went about it. I guess the proper word is lean. I mean, you know, I have a little bit of an ambivalent relationship to this word because it's been used in many different contexts and very often wrong, but I'd say we really gone kind of a lean way. So we kind of always try to, you know, get something on top. So as I said earlier, first there were, of course, there were the business questions. Um, Then there was this kind of proof of concept, you know, no code functional. And then the next step was to say, hey, you know what, now let's actually build something i mean we kind of learned with this uh, no code kind of proof of concept what we would need and then we said okay let's uh, kind of build it so now again taking into account that um, um, i'm the um, technical co-founder it's it's basically in terms of technology it would have been kind of a one-man show at the beginning so i wanted to take things you know as much you know, no ops as possible. <laughs> so the decision there really was to go kind of completely into the cloud. Um, you know, we're using Firebase um, in this case. And for the front end, I basically decided for um, Angular. Um, of course, you know, any other choice would have been completely fine as well. Uh, most likely, I mean, Angular is not like the most modern, you know, front end framework. There are others. But still, for me, kind of speed was the most important thing. And I felt that, hey, with um, Angular, A, I had a little bit of background, not too much with Angular. Um, I could kind of go it. Plus, actually, it would be easier to actually find talent and freelancers to help us out. Where then also, of course, um, Sphere kind of comes in, who kind of helped us, you know, get this, you know, next version um, basically up and uh, running with a very talented freelancer who kind of, or sorry, um, contractor, I think is the, is the correct word. Um, yeah, but they're basically, so yeah, in terms of strategy, product strategy, it's really um, the focus is on speed, lightweight, and basically organically scalable, which is why I wanted to have kind of a, you know, kind of a backend as a service approach, where at the end, I would only feel, let's say, the cost impact um, if, you know, things start to pick up and I need to scale, but I wouldn't have to, you know, worry about getting five more servers or something like this. I don't want to make it sound like, okay, we are interrogating you and asking you questions about how you did something, but I'd love to know uh, your thoughts on, um, let's say, balancing the technological and business decisions. So I see there was a lot of um, you know decisions here in the process, especially yeah. in the last 12 months. So I'd like to understand if there's any any recommendations from you or lessons learned, perhaps you can share in this area. How how do you decide between what tech to go for? And that there is business decisions, like you said, no. Sure. So, if there was any, you know, rules that you followed, or you know, sure, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. 
Sure, sure. I mean, I'm completely happy to give my thoughts. I'm not sure, you know, how 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 kind of bulletproof um, um, they will be, given that we're also just, uh, you know, pretty much still at the beginning. But uh, sure. Well, for me, uh, technology is a tool to achieve something. It's it's uh, you know, it's uh, um, technology as such for me doesn't is you know is not an end in itself, um, but it's a tool to achieve something. So I always prioritize kind of the business problems, the business uh, side of uh, of uh, the whole startup. So basically, I was always looking to kind of, you know, build technology that helps us to bring the business forward. And in this sense, as a startup, it's always the question like, what's the next piece of technology that we need to build in order to get another proof of traction or another proof of something? So at the beginning, you're always kind of, you're always kind of, you know, kind of jumping from kind of, you know, a proof milestone to proof milestone. And you kind of do this A for yourself in order to know whether it's worth to actually continue. Um, but also you do it because at some point, you know, you might want to talk to investors and, you know, you kind of always want to see more proof that the business can work. So, yeah, so in this sense, the technology basically always came second. Um, of course, um, now, focus shifts a little bit um, at some point when you kind of gain proof in the business concept you kind of start shifting focus so let's say a not only good or maybe very good product to kind but to an excellent product and that's kind of something that i think we'll see happen over the next uh, months uh, basically on our side that the focus will shift much more on a really delightful product Interesting. So the product will be much more richer, I guess. That's that is where you're heading right now uh, in terms of the user experience. Yes, in terms of the user experience, also in terms of what's basically in the back end, what's automated. I mean, there are still manual tasks that we are doing when it comes to reporting, things like that. So yeah, there are many things that um, will be automated. So how do you measure success? It sounds like there's a, you know, there are a lot of decisions being made versus it's that, you know, technical side or the business side. So how do you measure it? Like in business, is there, you know, kind of key things that you're looking in? Well, I mean, again, as a, or basically as a startup, success is moving forward is success. <laughs> so <laughs> if you kind of feel that you're moving forward and you kind of get more, more comfortable with what you're doing and you gain more, how should I say, more clarity in the vision and you kind of start feeling that, you know, suddenly you can, you know, it's kind of easier to, I don't know, convince customers, to convince brands, to talk to investors. That's kind of success. And of course, this will change once you're kind of a running, let's say, a completely operational business. And I mean, then for us, basically, you know, the biggest success metrics are, well, do people actually meet? Um, how happy are they? Uh, how many people participate in this scheme? And uh, does it actually generate a, you know, kind of a sales lift uh, for the brands at the end? But at the moment, so it's it's um, very much, success is very much kind of a still being there. <laughs> and, existential. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, it's still kind of being there. And especially at the beginning of the year with the corona lockdown, I mean, you know, suddenly at the beginning of 2020, Xperify looked like the dumbest idea of 2020, you know, <laughs> um, the connecting people in order to meet and test products. Brilliant. Yeah, so you kind of have to, you know, take this with, you know, a little bit of 
humor there. Um, although the situation wasn't that humorous, of course. And I mean, we were very much thinking whether it makes sense to go on or not, or whether to pivot completely. But at the end, we truly believe in what we do. And we, I mean, the COVID-19 crisis is a temporary crisis, hopefully. Uh, um, and uh, so we say, yeah, no, let's just, let's just continue. But, but yeah, at the beginning, it's um, very much more, much more existential. So you mentioned a little bit of um, Xperify founding team, but can you tell us more about the team and maybe a little bit of um, their responsibilities? You are the data scientist. What, what are their background and how did you guys meet? Sure. So we have three co-founders. It's uh, Nicolas, uh, Nicolas and me. Uh, my two co-founders, they both have a marketing business and uh, international relations background. So they basically kind of bring, you know, the more kind of um, um, business and kind of customer side. My background, as I said, um, so originally I'm a physics major, um, theoretical physics, statistical physics, and then kind of very early on drifted into what now people call, or I also call data science um, kind of direction. In terms of, um, you know, division, yes, kind of everything technology is basically on my head. Or, or it's basically kind of uh, um, the head eyewear. Uh, also, what you know, also the 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 things that you would usually call kind of the um, CEO kind of responsibilities, um, talking to you know investors and so on. That's uh, kind of on my table. With um, Nico, uh, Nico is basically our our product guru. Um, so you know, he makes sure that you know the product looks good, that people are happy. He's talking to the customers, uh, so the end customers, the users, taking care of the marketing, the branding, the positioning, um, and also um, a lot of the kind of operational tasks. Also, and then there is Nick, who is uh, basically, you know the one uh, person who is, who is uh, talking constantly to brands, so basically to our paying customers, you know, kind of the customer success officer there. Um, but again, you know, those boundaries, they're not sharp at all. <laughs> um, at the beginning, kind of everyone does everything. Of course, you know, everyone, you know, has a couple of um, specializations that, you know, people are better at or, you know, just simply can do and others can't. So um, there is some kind of, uh, basically division of labor, but in general, you know, we're kind of a really a kind of a founding team in this sense and not kind of, you know, one guy plus two guys, but we are really kind of a kind of a three person founding team. And that is very important to us and um, also how we kind of set it up from the beginning. And yes, and how we met, we actually met at um, Startup Week in Switzerland. Um, that is actually a, um, I don't know whether you know about Startup Weekend. It's a um, kind of a startup hackathon kind of thing. It's organized by um, tech stars um, all over the world uh, from independent chapters. And yeah, there's one in Zurich here. And um, that's actually where we met and where we got talking and where we kind of uh, discovered our, you know, common passion. That sounds, uh, sounds like uh, quite a story. Yes. Um, do, you, do you wish you had maybe another member in your team maybe or do you ever feel like it's a bit short or is it the optimum number or is there an optimum <laughs> number when it comes to the because i hear a lot of threes yeah, yeah, yes yeah, yes it's kind of hard i mean you know there are always pros and cons i would definitely not go for more as a founding team um three is a good number when it comes to making decisions it's perfect it's a odd number um, and it's not five <laughs> so and it's not one <laughs> so you know it's not too much it's not too 
too little. Um, what I definitely don't want to be, at least for this kind of venture, is I I really wouldn't like to be a solo founder, a solo entrepreneur. Uh, for the very reason, I mean, A, of course, you kind of simply get more done when you have uh, three people who are like, you know, 180% completely committed. So you just get more done in kind of a um, shorter time frame. But also what is super important, and I must admit that's the one thing I kind of underestimated, is the emotional support. Um, because if you kind of go on this journey it's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And especially this year with Corona, there's, you know, it's been, it's been even a bit more roller coaster than you would anyway see already in kind of a typical, quote, quote, typical founder journey. So, so yeah, the, the, the emotional support is, um, is super important there. Um, because, yeah, I mean, it happens regularly, you know, in kind of a few months intervals. And sometimes the frequency is a bit higher that you think to yourself, why am I actually doing this? Um, because it is a lot of work and there's a lot of uncertainty and, you know, the kind of opportunity costs, especially here in Switzerland and being a data scientist are high. So you kind of really need to, so you really need to believe that, you know, what you're doing really can make an impact and it's really worthwhile. And having someone to talk to who kind of, you know, is is not an outside friend, uh, but who really kind of feels the same thing, but hopefully not synchronized. So this is also something that we feel. So we kind of have those periods um, where we kind of feel a bit down and not synchronized, which is very good because then, you know, when one person is at a low, the other one is at a high, so you kind of counterbalance it. And that's, um, and that's the one thing why I think founder teams of um, at least, you know, two, two people are, are, maybe more successful and yeah i mean um, three is good so no i i wouldn't change anything there i want to just check on something so you, you sure. just mentioned not synchronized so so you know like in the financial world you think you you have you when you put four people in a room to do your you know the the buying and selling process every day if you're buying and selling obviously no. then you always hire four different personalities who are not in sync so everyone sees a different kind of risk which means when you combine all four you're de-risking a lot of risk factors that mm -hmm. exist in the market so so do, do you find that as well with the other co-founders that sometimes you are seeing a different perspective or oh, definitely and it, and it helps you know you you make a decision better than you would if you were all on the same page, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, at least I I also um, like to think so. You know, if it turns out to be exactly like this, um, the future will tell. But I, yeah, I mean, I would completely uh, agree that um, this is beneficial. Um, I mean, there is this saying, right? I mean, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, um, basically go as a team. And um, it's something that we all kind of truly believe in. Um, yes, I mean, at the beginning, you know, if it's only like one person or maybe two people who are maybe already friends and very close and somewhat synced in the way they kind of think, you might be a bit faster. Um, but, you know, you have kind of those blind spots that you might not see. And yeah, so for, for us, we're actually three very different personalities. And I think that's good, but there is a common ground and that's important. So, and the common ground is kind of the common, let's say the common value system, the common, yeah, 
the common value system in terms of what we want this thing that we are trying to build actually to be and to become. And of course, it's the kind of vision that you need to be aligned. So you need to be aligned with the vision and then I guess everything else is kind of details and is only really fruitful when you when you have um, different uh, perspectives. Completely agree. Okay, am I right to believe that this is probably the first time you've gone from an employee to running a company? Yes. yes. So, I mean, it's, it's quite a challenge. I mean, everyone wants to do something on their own, on, be an entrepreneur, have a, you know, some kind of uh, venture of their own, but not many people do it. So, and, and I see there is, there is, you know, there are challenges that come with this uh, process. So what I'd love to know from you is uh, what has been the most rewarding part of this process so far or the most and the most challenging part as well at the same time with that in mind um what advice do you have for our audience uh, who are thinking of starting a business actually i would really love to postpone this question to maybe two years down the road um but um let me let me still try to give a little bit of an answer just for me personally so for me personally the most rewarding thing is really to get up in the morning and to kind of know that you're actually moving forward with a team of people that you really like and that you trust uh, on a project that you truly believe in. So this is something truly rewarding. And this is also kind of the biggest difference to working in corporate is the mere speed. So if you don't like speed, if you like things to go a bit, you know, slower then doing something like this, at least, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of high scale startup we are trying to build is certainly not the right path. Um, yeah, so it's really the speed that is very rewarding and kind of also seeing seeing the progress. Um, on the other hand side, uh, exactly the same thing is also the hardest part <laughs> because progress at the beginning is very, very, very slow. And um, you kind of develop a little bit of a, uh, of a skin um, basically as thick as uh, the skin of an elephant because at the beginning when you talk to you know especially investors and especially not you know no now you have to see we're here in switzerland we're not at the at the east coast in the us where everyone is excited and you know everyone sees kind of the next twitter or the next google or the next facebook around the corner and tries to be part of that i mean um, investors here are much more reluctant, you know, and you need to kind of get to a much further proof point, I feel, in order to 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 kind of get people to buy in um, on your idea, maybe investors or brands, that actually finding early adopters kind of takes way longer here than it would take in the US. And um, at least that's kind of my my feeling, what I get from from also talking to to kind of other other entrepreneurs and that's kind of a you know that is hard that is hard especially when you you know you kind of talk to people and you hear more often than not that this is not going to work and that you know no one will do this and yeah it's uh, hard and it takes some kind of um, stamina to actually go through it but on the other side it's, it's exactly also one of the other rewarding things it's to actually develop this kind of skin you know uh, to say yeah you know what we just do it anyway and then we talk in a year or one and a half and then we're going to see so i agree there i think um to to be able to navigate the uncertainty 
every Absolutely. day is, is a different kind of challenge and not many people Absolutely. are prepared for it. You only know when you push yourself. So, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. With that amazing answer, I will pass the torch on to Senya, <laughs> who has one last question to go through. As Luke mentioned, this is the you know the final part of our podcast, and this is where I would say our questions get a lot trickier. And so <laughs> the question that I have for you today is if you could go back in time at any point um, you first, when you first identified your product vision and decided to create an MVP and there's a proof of concept, would you do anything differently and why? Uh, yes. Uh, well, this is a hindsight. Yes, I mean I'm a I'm a believer in you know that um, the things that happen they they usually happen for a reason and at that point it was because you didn't know better so you learn something so it's all good, but of course looking at you know something that might come after eventually or, or you know kind of uh, and you kind of um, endeavors within Xperify, yes there are a couple of things I would do different and one of the biggest one is that. Uh, okay, so so there I need to explain a bit. So when we started out, um, we kind of had a support, you know, network around of you know friends and family, colleagues um, that we talked to, and there are also a couple of entrepreneurs who, who basically you know launched their own businesses earlier. And one of the things we surprisingly often heard, and that's because many people came from kind of a B two B background, was don't build anything before you don't have the first signed contract. So basically don't build anything before you have the first customer. And that's kind of something that we that we really kind of tried to do and that failed for us. So, and this was then also our biggest pivot basically. So we were basically trying to sell something that didn't exist yet to basically brands who would love to have this. And uh, basically, you know, this with kind of a prepayment then basically could, you know, uh, basically would more or less finance everything that we are doing after. And this sounds kind of, you know, reasonable theoretically. And I think there is a a segment of um, a kind of startup and of software where this can work. And I think this segment is when you're building kind of highly, highly specialized B2B products, right? So if you're building a B2B software that, I don't know, automates um, whatever business process that hasn't been automated before, and you can basically show on paper why this would bring, I don't know, 10x ROI uh, for, the, uh, for the brand or for your customer, um, then I think you can get a deal like this done. But we realized then after... I'd say, yeah, almost a quarter, we basically went into this direction. We realized that it's not working for us because the value proposition was so completely new that people couldn't kind of imagine what it would bring. You know, what would be the ROI? And this is why this didn't work. And this is then also the point, and this was basically end of last year, where we decided, hey, you know what, we actually need to build a product first in order to actually try to test it out and get it already sold to brands. And that's the one thing I would do different for this kind of startup um, to basically, you know, spend the first eight weeks just coding and get something done or then basically how we did it also in a, in a, in a faster way with the uh, public prototype, but basically, yeah, um, kind of start building something earlier and start selling or start trying to sell this earlier and then basically iterate on this and not trying to kind of convince someone to basically buy a story and then build the product. I like that response. Thank you. I think it's, I agree with you. It's very important to identify that there's a problem before you start building the, the product. 
So, uh, Renee, I want to thank you for your time. Um, you've taken so uh, some precious time out of your schedule and spoken with us, recorded this episode. Um, so Thanks for having me. Thank you ever so much for this. A special thanks to our podcast guests this week, and once again to our sponsor, Sphere Partners, for bringing this episode to life. If you enjoyed this episode, drop SphereCast a five-star review on iTunes and share this content with your network. For any relevant links or notes from this episode, check out our podcast website at www.spheringc.com forward slash SphereCast. And always remember, when you think you can't, technology can. See you next time.